It's a problem being exiled from the garden. You know, we, we, we become aware that we're mortal. And on top of all that, we're exiled from this wonderful oneness, this wonderful place where we felt like we belonged and everything was in harmony. Now we're outside of this harmony. We spend the rest of our lives feeling disharmonious with everything and everyone to some degree. And homesick for our garden. I've often wondered why some of my most beautiful nature experiences have felt like coming home. Coming home or a new sense of belonging. Hello again. This time I'll chat with my wife Clara Akebrand about John Keats's poem, Ode to a Nightingale. As I mentioned before in the Wordsworth recording, I'm going to be putting the conversation about these poems first and my reading of these poems after. I'm not sure there's any right or good or better way to do this. Maybe you should read the poem on your own first, listen to our chat, then listen to me reading it while you follow along. If you want to, I suppose you could skip to the end, listen to me reading it, circle back and hear the conversation that Claire and I have about the poem. Whatever you think would help you get into the poem in the most effective way. I will, of course, be starting with a quote. This is from a letter that John Keats wrote to his brother. Call the world, if you please, the veil of soul-making. Then you will find out the use of the world. I say soul-making. Soul as distinguished from an intelligence. There may be intelligences or sparks of the divinity in millions, but they are not souls till they acquire identities, till each one is personally itself. Intelligences are atoms of perception. They know and they see and they are pure. In short, they are God. How then are souls to be made? How then are these sparks, which are God, to have identity given them? so as ever to possess a bliss peculiar to each one's individual existence. How but by the medium of a world like this? This point I sincerely wish to consider because I think it a grander system of salvation than the Christian religion, or rather it is a system of spirit creation. I will call the human heart the hornbook used in that school, and I will call the child able to read the soul made from that school and its hornbook. Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul? A place where the heart must feel and suffer in a thousand diverse ways. Well, I think this quote hardly needs my explication. I find it immensely stunning, beautiful, suggestive, illuminating. For more about soul-making and a world of pains and troubles, and the bliss that souls are capable of. Let's go into that chat about Ode to a Nightingale with me and Claire. So hello. Hi. This is Claire Akebrand, author of... Go for it. <laughs> author of What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems. 
Is this yeah. your favorite poem of all time? Oh, it's that's too hard of a question to answer, but it's uh, it's definitely a contender. So we'll be talking about why this poem is a masterpiece. We're using this poem as a representative text for Romanticism. This poem, Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. I'll say it here, I'll say it in class again. I don't really like these labels. Hmm. Labels like Enlightenment, Romanticism, Modernism. I think all of these things are much more fluid. They can be convenient sometimes, but all of these things are much more fluid than the labels would imply. I agree with T.S. Eliot when he says that all art exists simultaneously. So if a work of art is timeless, it has detached itself from its particular time and place and become for all time and all place. Mm -hmm. You know, the Romantics tapped into something permanent and universal and timeless about the human condition. Yes, there are cultural changes that, that occur. Certain cultures emphasize certain things in a way that other c cultures don't. So coming after the Enlightenment, which, you know, is an age of scientific revolution, scientific discovery, rational thought, the Romantics emphasized individual inner subjective experience, right? The world of emotions and the inner revolutions of the mind. Mm. I am oversimplifying here, and again, I hate doing that, but it can't be helped. If art depends on mystery and wonder, and if the exterior world was being explained or beginning to be explained by science, then the Romantic poets needed to go elsewhere, where the sense of the unknown and mystery and wonder was still as potent as ever. I mean, Keats, for example, doesn't really like... Keats and William Blake don't really like what Isaac Newton is up to. Hmm. They think that by quote-unquote dissecting the rainbow, we will strip it of its wonder, which, you know, again... Isn't true. The, the more you learn about the world scientifically, the more wondrous it becomes. Especially because you can't learn everything about it. No, exactly. I'm just trying to briefly, in a thumbnail sketch outline, in an oversimplified way, how they were positioning themselves against the previous generation. So, mm -hmm. and also, I want to say there are different types of romantic poems, you know, and this is something that I want these two short little podcasts to emphasize. For Wordsworth, the mind is a mansion of all lovely forms. And for Keats, the mind is a source of suffering that needs to be numbed. A ruin of all. <laughs> a ruin. That's exactly right. So I'll stop talking. I've talked already too much. Why is this poem a masterpiece? We, we can talk about why it's a representative text for romanticism, I guess. But um, I'd rather emphasize, I'd rather spend most of the time talking about why it's a masterpiece. This is... this. I said I'll shut up. Yeah. <laughs> this, cla this class is, after all, called Masterpieces of World Literature. So, Claire, I'm finally passing the baton. Why <laughs> is this poem a masterpiece? Well, one of the things it does extremely well in a sort of unforgettable way is that it, it manages to um, portray one of the greatest aspects of what it means to be human, and that is to yearn for something permanent, something timeless, while uh, oppressed by, you know, the thoughts of our mutability, our temporary nature. Mm. And there's so many amazing contradictions in this poem, too. Keats is yearning for something timeless, like this song of the nightingale. Of course, the nightingale itself that he's hearing is just as mortal as he is, but it's interesting that he is turns the nightingale into a metaphor for um, things that last what you say is really wonderful about this, the wonderful paradoxes of this poem. We begin the poem with this lamentation of mortality. Mm -hmm. He says, fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. The weariness, the fever and the fret, here where men sit and hear each other groan. Mm -hmm. Where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, 
where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. We'll remind people listening that he um, was at his brother's deathbed. He watched his very young brother die of consumption or tuberculosis. So when Keats says where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, this is not an abstraction for him. Yeah, he's not He's not trying to write about serious subjects. This is his experience. Yeah, this isn't melodrama. No. This is deadly realistic. Mm-hmm. So there's that mortality, and in the context of that mortality, yes, he's looking for an object that is permanent and immortal and timeless. And he finds this bird and says, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The -hmm. voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. And then my favorite bit, perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home. She stood in tears amid the alien corn. This bird is just as mortal as he is. And it's probably going to croak before he does. And certainly knows what suffering is. Mm-hmm. You know, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. Mm-hmm. The bird might not be as capable of such complex emotions, but I've always been intrigued by the fact that the particular bird that Keats is hearing mm-hmm. is mortal. But what he is celebrating is lineage, the idea of lineage. Mm. that there is something there is some bird nest that does seem timeless and undying i assume that he is talking about the song itself the song of the nightingale has always sounded the same you know in a poem where somebody yearns for permanence and he hears this bird of course you know he would think back of course to the past you know since he can't hope for permanence in the future he looks towards the past the song itself of this of the nightingale has always been the same. And I think it's a really beautiful thought that all these different characters he talks about, that they would have heard the same bird, the same song, the same melody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially coming from a poet who, you know, his grave <laughs> says, here lies one whose name was read on water. He was obsessed with the idea of his contribution being extremely temporary because he was striving so badly for immortality especially in his work he wanted his poems to last he wanted his poems to feel the same to us to one person in one century as to another in another century mm-hmm. as with these people you know ruth hearing the nightingale having maybe the same feelings hearing it as the clown or emperor. And I think we should point out that his desire for poetic immortality wasn't necessarily narcissistic. He he was sick for a while and knew it was coming. Yeah, he died when he was 26, So, and he was sick for a few years, also mm. with tuberculosis. Mm. So if you're 23 and you start coughing blood, mm. and you start showing the exact same symptoms, I mean, I really want people listening to do this mental thought experiment. I mean, many of you are probably 23 years old. Imagine that you have just watched your sibling die, and then you start feeling sick and having all the same symptoms, and know that your time on Earth is suddenly limited to a matter of months, maybe years. Your mind will... I mean, what can be said about that? It's... You're going to be tortured by thoughts of what could have been, what might have been, a life cut short, the songs, literal and metaphorical, that you could have sung, you know, in the next 60 years that you suddenly won't be able to. 
in the context of that mortality, you're going to be looking for a way to make something that outlasts your all-too-brief existence. Your priority isn't going to be to write a publishable poem. It's going to be to write something immortal. Exactly. It's not going to be, I want this poem in The New Yorker, but it's going to be, I want this poem to be as timeless as The Song of the Nightingale. Yeah. And um, and why? Keats, in a poem called Sleep and Poetry, says that a poem should be a friend to lift the thoughts and ease the cares of men. Lift the thoughts and ease the cares of men. I really love that. Mm. Poetry does important work in the world. He says that this song of the nightingale comforted the sad heart of Ruth. Right. When she stood in tears amid the alien corn and she heard this song and and, and felt in it some emblem of home, something familiar, something Mm. beautiful, something comforting. This is what poems are for. I love that idea of the home. That's good. That's good stuff. Every once in a while. Well, good, that is good. Good little nugget. But you know what I mean. Why do we turn to literature for comfort? I mean, for many reasons, but certainly near the top of the list is comfort. It comforts us. Right. And then, of course, the question is, how could a poem about death like this, about somebody wanting to cease and to cease, uh, what does it say? Upon the midnight with no pain. Exactly. How can a poem like this be uplifting? But before we do, that's a great direction to go. But before, mm-hmm. before we go, let's let's just lay out a little bit more of the context of how the poem starts. The poem starts in a, in a mood of utter dejection. Mm-hmm. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, right? I know. And immediately we already have the contradictions. How can a numbness be painful? Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I think anyone who has tasted depression knows this feeling. It, it is a numbness. Mm-hmm. But it's a numbness that paradoxically hurts. Mm. And, of course, for especially for a poet, this would be the, the ultimate enemy, right? A numbness. I suppose, yeah, for a romantic poet, perhaps especially. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I think for any human, too. I mean... Of course. Yeah. Nobody wants to... F- nobody... I mean, we all have mornings like this. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness. So, so beautifully phrased. Isn't that what... I don't want to use the word depression because that kind of reduces it. Mm-hmm. I think it oversimplifies it. Mm-hmm. We all have episodes of drowsy numbness yeah. where we feel both physically exhausted and mentally apathetic and emotionally empty. Or poisoned. As though of hemlock I had drunk. Yeah, we feel poisoned. Something outside of ourselves. I mean, this is one – I wanted to do these two poems in comparison – this poem with the Tintern Abbey poem, because, I mean, like I say, there are different types of romanticism, and it's hard to imagine more distance between Keats and Wordsworth, both stylistically and in terms of temperament. You know, yeah. for, for, for Keats, the mind is a problem, and it needs to be numbed. You know, he says in this poem, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs. I know, but that's the part where the contradictions come in again, because I just don't buy that. I feel like his pain in the beginning comes from a numbness, that he doesn't feel like he's fully able to think, that he doesn't have clarity of mind, and he doesn't want to fly away, not charioted by Bacchus and his parts. He doesn't want to get drunk or yeah. or high or forget about his problems that way. He wants clarity of mind, but at the same time, he wants to dissolve and forget he does and he doesn't. I mean, he does say, oh, for a draft of vintage, right? He's like, 
Oh, if there was only wine that was so powerful that it was full of dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. I know, but there I feel like he's saying he wants to get drunk on nature rather than... Drunkness is a pale imitation of what he longs for. So he wants to get drunk in a way, but he says that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. That's not normal intoxication. It's this, mm, yeah. you know, he's tried intoxication and it hasn't solved the problem. So is there some extreme version of intoxication that will solve the problem? Mm. He says, um, now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. This is how I read the poem. He wants to go from a conscious thinking thing to a thing that doesn't have this burden of the of the brain, the conscious thinking brain. Mm-hmm. So again, in the contrast between him and Wordsworth, for Keats, the brain is the source of suffering. Where but to think is to be full of sorrow. If I if only I could get rid of this brain, maybe wine will do it. No, not really. Maybe opium will do it. No, maybe no, not really. That's the problem. We'll see in Wordsworth when we get to Wordsworth that for him, the brain is your saving grace. It's the source of immense comfort and salvation and redemption and consolation. And it's everything to him. And it's so hopeful. Uh, Yes. And Wordsworth, the difference between the two is that Wordsworth says these things out loud, but Keats shows through his writing that he also worships the mind and thought. You know what I mean? Oh, certainly. I mean, he does have a poem, Ode to Psyche. I wouldn't want to give the impression that I find this poem to be a downer or depressing you're right, it is full of contradictions. Half of half of the utterance is lamenting consciousness, mm-hmm. while the other half is exuberantly displaying all of the reasons why consciousness is so beautiful and sweet. I know. I've read this poem so many times, wouldn't even know how many times, but the stanza you just read um, fade into the midnight with no pain. When he says, now more than ever seems it rich to die... For the first time, I wondered if he doesn't mean now seems it rich to die because I'm so depressed and dejected, but rather now because I'm full of feelings. I fully feel nature and the song of the nightingale, and he's in a sort of mm-hmm. ecstasy. To cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. It might be difficult to tell if that means... I want to die while I'm hearing this music, or I want to die, meanwhile, you couldn't be happier. Well, yeah, it could mean both. He goes on to say, Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. So it could be one of the reasons why he's not fully committed to death, because he would miss the song of the nightingale. I wouldn't have ears to hear it, and it would land on me like it lands on the ground. It would be totally without affect or meaning. So... This half, and I have been, I have been half in love with easeful death. There are reasons to remain on earth in life, and one of those reasons is birdsong and poetry about birdsong. Absolutely, I'm not sure why, but this is one of my favorite moments in poetry. When that stanza where he says, "I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet." wherewith the seasonable month endows. And then he goes on to describe all the different plants and flowers. But I think this is one of those moments where he's really celebrating the imagination and the living in mysteries and uncertainties without reaching for answers, painfully, you know? when he, Like when he talks about negative capability in his letters. Mm-hmm. 
um, the ability to not overthink things and to live mysteries. To be okay with not knowing. Exactly. And that's he shows here in practice what that might look like. I can't see the flowers, but I can smell them. I imagine what they are, and it's uh, seemingly bliss, right? <laughs> I, I'm with you. It's it's one of my favorite stanzas of all poetry. Um, and yeah, I agree. To me, it in one of his other letters, he says, Oh, for a life of sensations rather than thoughts. Mm-hmm. Which, on first blush, seems like one of these swoony, melodramatic things that a romantic poet would say. But we all know this feeling. Thoughts are a problem. We're going to get to Mary Shelley, Frankenstein. And in this book, Dr. Frankenstein craves knowledge, pursues knowledge, and is ultimately cursed by his desire to know. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God tells them, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Mm. There's something about knowledge that is dangerous or risky or painful. When Keats says, oh, and this is why we can look at animals with envy, because yes, they can experience physical pain, they can experience fear, probably, but I think it's, what do I know? I'm not a biologist, but I think it's common sense to assume that they live in the moment. Mm. I mean, there are all kinds of different kinds of animal consciousnesses, but they live in the moment. They're not plagued by aching hearts or existential dread. Mm. Theirs is a life of sensations. They smell the flowers and they don't think, oh yes, but this will all pass and I am mortal and none of this means anything. They don't have those kinds of depressive thought patterns. So there's something about our brains, our massive brains, that is partly a curse. So when Keats says, I can't see the flowers, but I can smell them, he's living in a way like one of his senses is off. I mean, this goes back to King Lear, you know, blindness and insight. Blindness has always been, sight has always been a metaphor for, you know, knowledge of some kind. Hmm. He's enacting this desire to live a life of sensations. And for a moment, it's a moment of kind of pure, natural oneness with these aromas. Mm-hmm. And he can kind of forget about everything else. There's just the sensation, just the sense, S-C-E-N-T-S. Mm-hmm. There's just the sense, you know, there's no torturous layer of consciousness that is telling him all of this is fleeting. I don't know. Have you ever read this poem as a sort of Adam and Eve looking at the garden from the outside? Um, Elaborate. You know, after the fall, as if they had gone back to the garden and looking at it through through a gate or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? We'll say more. His morning thought, a knowledge, this new knowledge of good and evil, his experiences. Um, and his mortality. And you know, his mortality. When they're exiled from the garden, they become mortal. That's a problem. It's a problem being exiled from the garden. You know, we, we become mortal and we become, when we, we, we become aware that we're mortal. Mm-hmm. And on top of all that, we're exiled from this wonderful oneness, this wonderful place where we felt like we belonged and everything was in harmony. You're absolutely right. Now we're outside of this harmony. Mm. We spend the rest of our lives feeling disharmonious with everything and everyone to some degree. And homesick for a garden. Absolutely, homesick for a garden. A meta- a, maybe a literal, but certainly a metaphorical garden where where things, I'll just keep using this word, grow harmoniously together. Mm. I've often wondered why some of my most beautiful nature experiences have felt like coming home. Yes. 
coming home or a new sense of belonging or we humans have this weird relationship with nature we don't we know we don't belong in it mm-hmm. we know that if we were put there if you were dropped into the middle of nature with nothing you would die you know depending on the landscape you'd be dead in an hour or in 24 hours other either way you'd be dead mm-hmm. we know we don't belong there and yet we constantly crave being there yeah some of the most sublime experiences in life are with nature Part of the exile, part of what we crave could be the sense of unchangingness. Yes, there are seasons, and yes, things change in nature, but on the other hand, they don't really. Mm. Keats is right. This bird song never really disappears. Leaves turn red and fall off the branches, but then they're right back. You know, So it's a kind of... T- Building we, stone come crop up and uh, factories. and Yeah, we get a sense of timelessness. We get a, ten- mm. we get a sense that time has stopped. Which, you know, to take us back to this poem, it's like exactly what happens in this poem. Mm. He goes on this reverie, this kind of opium dream. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadow, over the hill stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Time has stopped. Consciousness is in this very strange fluid state. Mm-hmm. A sense of identity even seems to be gone for a minute. Absolutely. And language brings him back to himself, which can also be read as a positive thing. You know what I mean? Language um, brings him back to himself as if he was lost in a place where he couldn't remain. Well, he's renewed. I mean, he he wants to fade into death, but only half. He only half wants that. So it is good that he comes back to his to his senses. I know there's that want. There's that desire again to both forget, but also to have clarity of mind. The poem. I think that the incantation of the poem and its rhymes and its rhythms and its images has been for him that opium, that wine, that reverie. Mm. And it's caused him to, for a moment, forget that we are in a place where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. Mm. In a way, the poem has provided the medicine, the healing, the comfort that he longs for at the beginning. Mm. The sound of the poem becomes that healing. Why is the last answer so great? (laughs) Don't ask me. (laughs) Seriously. I love the lengths he goes through to show the uh, song fading away. You know what I mean? Past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside. It's wonderful. Very deep in the next valley glades. It's so wonderful. It's it just rips your heart out. <laughs> it's I mean I don't know I don't I I wouldn't I think poetry is in, implicit and can't really be fully. It's a magic trick. It's a miracle. It's a turning of water into wine. And how is this achieved? We can talk about it around the edges, but we'll never fully be able to explain it. I love the rhythm of those. Past the near meadow, over the hill stream, up Mm. the hillside. This kind of like successive wave of Mm. crescendos and and risings and fallings and risings and fallings. Mm. I I wanted to mention about the form of the poem. Like, these are in little mini sonnets. Keats was in love with the sonnet as a form. And what the sonnet does is, and I don't have to tell you this, but 
for people listening, the sonnet is a the sonnet is a form of poetry that is particularly good at encapsulating the process of thought. So you know you have an octave and then a turn and then a sestet. So it encapsulates the way that a thought can become a different kind of thought. You know, so a Shakespearean sonnet: "I love you, then I hate you," or "I love you, and then I really, really love you." So mm-hmm. it's this little tiny box that can replicate the way that the mind works. Keats is writing in these tiny little curtailed sonnets, right? So a B, A, B, which is the first quatrain of a sonnet, and then attached to that we have the six lines, the sestet of a sonnet. So each of the stanzas of, the, of this poem is a kind of shrunken sonnet, which I think is is appropriate, is telling. It's a poem that wants to both extend back to contradictions. It's a poem that wants to um, collapse thought into a... Something manageable. Exactly, a perceptible chunk. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's stanza after stanza. It's not just one of these. So it, it does, it collapses thoughts into perceptible chunks again and again and again and again. Mm. So we have turn of thought, turn of thought, turn of thought, turn of thought, the mind, the mind, the mind. You know, I think it's really appropriate considering the subject matter. Mm. It doesn't really answer your question about why the last stanza is so beautiful. I, was it a vision or, or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? I think the questions help make it so beautiful. He doesn't know. And then the poem is over. So, We'll never know. I know. There again, the contradictions: waking versus sleeping. Yeah. Forgetting versus, um, cl- you know, remembering. Remembering slash having that clarity of mind. And then he says, maybe it was a waking dream. Maybe there's some paradoxical between state. It's probably the best definition of a poem: a waking dream. Things get so surreal in that last stanza. If it was up to me, I, I would never stop talking about this poem. We haven't mentioned this idea about the fancy. The fancy cannot cheat so well. Right. Talks about that. Talks about Bacchus and his pards or... Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I love it so much. It's beautiful. We'll hear from Wordsworth um, in the other recording that the purpose of poetry is to give pleasure. And this poem never disappoints in that regard. Mm Mm-hmm. Did we want to briefly mention our failed, futile attempts at seeing Keats's grave in Rome? so sad we're like we should travel before we have kids because who knows so (laughs) we were living in germany yeah and i had the brilliant idea of signing us up for a bus ride (laughs) a bus trip through italy and it turns out it was it was a brilliant idea you you sound like you're being sarcastic (laughs) but it was brilliant it was great yeah (laughs) and anyway it was only a week and we were going to several uh, city, cities in Italy, and so w- what did we have in Rome? Like eight hours in Rome. Oh, it was crazy, and it was on a national holiday. It was like th- possibly the most, the biggest holiday in Italy. Yeah, there was crowds so everywhere. Everything was closed. The Colosseum was closed. Everything, but th- there were such insane crowds. Airplanes spraying the Italian flag into the sky. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know what was happening. Um, we and- rush like mad people to. The Keats house, which is the house near the Spanish steps where he died. Mm-hmm. And it was open. We were shocked that it was open. But this uh, American grad student comes out. <laughs> and we're like, oh my gosh, is it actually open? And she's like, he actually just closed. <laughs> yeah. Like minutes before. And yeah, we basically knew that moment that the chance would not come for another decade or two <laughs> and on the way out of rome i mean his the graveyard where he is is way he's buried there and so is shelly and um on the way out of rome in this bus we 
craned our necks trying to see it because we were driving quite close by it, but there's no way. We got very, <laughs> we got maddeningly close. One day when we retire, we're gonna go back. Yeah. Very old. So this is Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and leafy words had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim, fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale, and spectre thin, and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow, and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. Already with thee, Tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown, through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but, in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit-tree wild, white hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musgroves full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. Darkling I listen, and, for many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now, more than ever, seems it rich to die. 
to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn. Forlorn. The very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu. The fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu. Thy plaintive anthem fades. Past the near meadows, over the hill stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried in the next valley glades. Was it a vision? Or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake? Or sleep? I hope you enjoyed these two mini, I say mini, smaller recordings about these two absolutely magnificent poems. Make sure you also listen to the recording about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And in the meantime, keep reading. Maybe explore some additional poems by these excellent poets. And as Wordsworth says, keep enjoying the pleasures that these readings have to offer. (laughs) ¶¶